One of the most challenging um, sermons that we get to preach as pastors is during one of the major holidays, um, you know, that we celebrate as Christians, uh, Christmas and then Easter. And, you know, whether you attend every week or you attend only on those special occasions, the story of Jesus' birth, his death, and his resurrection are something that we're all familiar with. And so what we can tend to do is kind of tune out and kind of put things in autopilot and tune out to what the Holy Spirit wants to say to us uh, through his word and, and through the sermon. Um, just because of our familiarity with, with the message. Yet Jesus' birth, his, his death, and his resurrection are the focal point of the gospel. And they are foundational truths that we as believers need to be reminded of. And those who maybe only attend during those special occasions need to hear. Uh, it kind of reminds me of when I lived in Kichai. And for about eight years, our family lived there. Um, and I would commute every day back and forth over to El Dorado because I worked at the refinery over there. And I would do that sometimes five, well, definitely five, sometimes six, sometimes seven uh, days a week. And there would be times when I would leave my garage, and the next thing I was cognizant of is pulling into the entrance of the refinery, not having remembered anything about the drive over there. And uh, there were times when I would head over to the refinery, and in the distance, I could see the, the flashing lights of emergency vehicles, and I knew that that was an accident at one of the major intersections, if you've ever driven 254. And that would just wake me up and from this kind of commute stupor that I was in, and my awareness would be heightened the rest of the, the time that I'm traveling, and I would notice things, and I would be aware of things that I otherwise wouldn't be aware of. So this morning, I pray that you would just tune in and not tune out and just be attentive to what the Spirit might say to us this morning as we start our Easter series. And so I'm going to have my sister-in-law, Kim, she's going to come up and read a passage of Scripture for us, and I'm going to pray for us, okay? So would you bow your heads while I pray? Father, I ask that you would awake us this morning from the familiar. Lord, disrupt our lives this morning. Disrupt us from our spiritual stupor so that we might hear something afresh in your word. I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would make us sensitive and receptive to what you have to say to us through your word this morning. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Kim? Good morning. If you would stand out of respect, if you can, for the word of God. <clears throat> Scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. 
unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Church, hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So let me begin by just stating the essential truths of the gospel, the, the good news that Kim read that was spoken by Paul or was written by Paul to the church in Corinth and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Again, let me, let me just read it. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So here in this passage, we have the essentials or the foundation of the gospel. One, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Two, Christ was buried according to the scriptures. And three, Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. This is the gospel that Paul preached to those in Corinth. And this is what those he was writing to received, they believed, they held fast to, and they stood upon, and, which, and by which they were being saved. So in many ways, the gospel is that simple. Jesus came, he died for our sins, and after three days, he rose from the dead and came back to life and overcame death. If you receive and believe this truth and you put your faith in it and you hold fast to it, then you also will be saved from a Christless eternity. Now, Paul lays out this simple message earlier in this letter, and he says he didn't come with eloquent words or with wisdom, but he came as a demonstration of the Spirit and power. 1 Corinthians 2 says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul didn't mince his words. He didn't use elaborate words or his own wisdom to make his point. His focus was Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it was the centrality of what Jesus accomplished on the cross that was his message. Now, in the first century, this was scandalous to proclaim something like this, that the God of the universe who created all things would die on a cross. The cross was the most humiliating form of execution for criminals in the Roman world, and it was meant to shame the person who was executed by it and died by this means. For the Jews, anyone who hung on a tree was a curse, according to Deuteronomy 21. 
So this was a huge stomach block for the Jews. For the Gentiles living in Corinth, this was foolishness because how could anyone who claimed to be a god die on a cross? They worshiped Sophia, the goddess of wisdom, and so it was foolish for anyone to believe that God could die this way. Yet a symbol that was considered so offensive by both Jews and Romans became central to the Christian faith. But Christ crucified was what Paul preached, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. The cross represents the sacrifice of the only one who could save us from our sins. And so my hope for you today is that God's word would land on you in power and as a demonstration of the Spirit's work in your life so that your faith would rest in the power of God. So with this foundation kind of laid that Jesus Christ came, he died for our sins, and that he was raised on the third day, there are three questions that Darren and I want to address over the coming weeks as we get ready for Easter and as we prepare our hearts for Easter. The first question is, why did Jesus have to die? Two, does it matter if he really rose? And three, what does it mean? So I'll, I'll address the first question this morning. Why did Jesus have to die? What are we really asking when we ask this question, why? Because why can mean the reason or the cause or motive or the purpose. And there's actually many answers to the, in the scriptures that uh, answer this question, why did Jesus have to die? Uh, there was a book that was written by John Piper a few years back, and he gave 50 reasons that he found in Scripture why Jesus had to die. And so I'm going to take about five minutes to go through each one of those, and so we should be done around 2 o'clock, okay? I mean, KU already won last night, right? So you guys don't have a basketball game to go to, so... <laughs> no, seriously, um, if... If you want to spend some time just reflecting on that question, why did Jesus have to die, uh, I would recommend getting that book. It's a free download on the Desiring God website. So spend some time reflecting on that question. But let me, let me take a little different approach and discuss three answers to the question why Jesus had to die. Okay? I want to look at the reason why. I want to look at the motive why Jesus had to die. And then thirdly, I want to look at the purpose why he had to die. So the first answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die, answers the reason why he had to die. The reason why Jesus had to die is because it was necessary to pay for our sins so that he could be our substitute and give us life in the world to come. Let me repeat that. The reason why Jesus had to die is because it was necessary to pay for our sins so that he could be our substitute and give us life in the world to come. Now, as you all know, any great story has to have setting, uh, characters, a plot, some type of conflict, uh, and then a resolution. And the epic story that the Bible tells isn't make-believe. 
It is reality because that, that is what life is like. That's what life really is. So in the beginning of the story, we are introduced to the main character, God. The setting is the earth, and it's formless and void. And so what God does is he begins to create out of this formless and void beauty and order. And then he separates the water from the land, and he begins to create all kinds of plant and animal life to inhabit these two environments. We are then introduced to two more characters as God creates Adam and Eve in his own image to have relationship with himself and then to rule over all that he has created on his behalf. Conflict then enters into the scene, not too far into the story. And the man and the woman are confronted with a choice represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have the choice of either ruling by what they believe is right and by what they see and what they have determined what is good and evil, or they can depend upon God's wisdom and trust him and what he defines as good and evil. Of course, they decide to be independent from God and determine for themselves what is good and evil for themselves. And so rebellion enters into God's good world. The result is that mankind's relationship with God is broken. And then brokenness enters into the relationship of all humanity, and even man's relationship with the creation itself is distorted. The Bible calls this sin. We read how the sinfulness of man spirals out of control, and then the rest of the story is how God is bringing a resolution to the problem of sin in his good world. Through the family of Abraham, God brought resolution to the problem of sin through one of his descendants, a king, Jesus, the God-man. Jesus, who is fully God, takes on humanity and enters into our world and does something no one up to this point in the story was able to do. He fully obeys God so that he could bear the weight of sin and pay for them by his death on the cross. Through his death, he satisfies the payment God requires by, God, by his justice in order to become a substitute so that we might be free from the penalty of sin, which is death. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, there's a beautiful picture of this in the story. Uh, sometimes you've seen the musical of Les Mis, Les Miserables. In the story, the main character, Jean Valjean, steals the bishop's silverware. And so he's captured by the police, and he's brought back to the bishop um, to really confess what he had stolen and to be prosecuted. But there's a, a twist in the story, if you've ever seen it. There's a surprising twist. The bishop tells the police that he didn't actually steal it, but that the silver was given to him as a gift. And he even reprimands Jean Valjean in front of the police officer 
and tells him that he forgot the silver candlesticks. And so he takes the silver candlesticks and he sticks it in the bag of silver. Of course, the, the police officers are in dismay. The bishop substitutes the silver candlestick as payment for John Valjean's freedom. And he sets him free and gives him a blessing. This is what Jesus did for us on the cross. I like the way John Stott sums this up in his book, The Cross for Christ. The essence of sin is we, human beings, substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. I love that. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. But maybe you're thinking right now, couldn't God just like forgive us if we're truly sorry for what we've done wrong? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to forgive someone who seriously wronged you? I mean, that is a hard, hard thing to do. It might have been something they did physically to you or emotionally or psychologically, or maybe they hurt your reputation or cost you some financial gain. Even if they were to sincerely say, I'm sorry, there is a cost to that forgiveness, and someone has to bear that cost. To truly forgive someone, you have to choose not to retaliate for their wrong towards you and bear the cost of that wrong upon yourself. Of course, this, this could cause great agony to yourself as you endure the pain that it has caused, the, the hurt that it has caused. God, through his Son, bore the cost of our sins against himself. The cost of damage done by sin was death and has to be paid by someone, either by us with our own death or by God through the death of his son. So Jesus went to the cross to pay for our forgiveness with his life so that he can extend forgiveness to us so that we might be reconciled to God and have eternal life. Jesus' death reconciles our relationship with God and allows us a way to be reconciled to one another. Romans 5.10 says, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the reason why Jesus had to die is because it was necessary to pay for our sins so that he could be our substitute and give us life in the world to come. The second answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die, answers the motive why he had to die. The motive why Jesus had to die is because he was compelled by his love for us, and he willingly took action to do this. The motive why Jesus had to die is because he was compelled by his love for us, and he willingly took action to do this. Look at what the following verses have to say. Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then a verse that we're all familiar with, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God showed that he is love through the action of giving his only Son to die for us. Now, there's a word in the Old Testament that encapsulates this type of love, and it's the word hesed. Hesed describes the kind of love that is motivated by deep personal care and that God demonstrates to those who are undeserving. God's greatest demonstration of this type of hesed love was in the sacrifice of his son Jesus for the redemption of humanity. Now, this hesed love became very personal and, and real to me uh, a few years back. Uh, I had taken my girlfriend, now my wife, Shelly, uh, back home to, um, to introduce her to my parents and, and to propose for, to her. And so one morning we were driving to go to church with my cousin. And during this drive, Shelly um, told me about a conversation that she had with my mom uh, the previous day. And this was a story that my mom had never shared with me. And so my mom told Shelly that when she was a young girl uh, in Vietnam, growing up in Vietnam, her parents were so poor that they couldn't afford to take care of her, and so they sent her to a rich aunt to, to have this aunt take care of her. Well, this aunt was, like, super horrible. Um, she just treated her like a slave, uh, she abused her, and she told her that if, um, you know, when she grew up, she wouldn't amount to anything, and that she would probably end up being pregnant. So you can imagine, you know, when my mom got to the age, she wanted to move out of her aunt's home. Uh, not long after that, there was a young soldier, Vietnamese soldier, that was interested in my mom, and he kept asking her out, and just would not take no for an answer. And so finally my mom relented, and they went out on a date, and at the end of the evening, he forced his way up into her room and assaulted her. Not long after that, um, she discovered that she was pregnant. And all the words that her aunt had spoken to her, you know, just came flooding back into her mind. And she didn't want that prophecy to be fulfilled in her own life. So she decided to abort the child. She made a, a, uh, an appointment to go see a lady who kind of did this secretly um, so that she could abort the child. And somehow this young soldier found out what was going to happen. And so she went to this lady and said, when that young girl comes to see you, do not perform that procedure, or I'm going to come back and kill you. When my mom arrived for the procedure, the, the woman yelled at her and, and chased her away. No abortion was performed that day, and the baby's life was saved. The baby in that young girl's womb was me. 
As Shelley shared this story, my story, uh, you can imagine tears just flooding my eyes. I was overwhelmed by God's deep personal care for me, his hesed love that he showed to me even before I even knew him. And I thought to myself, why me? Why would you preserve the life of a little Vietnamese baby in the womb of a young, poor Vietnamese girl? I could have died in anonymity. I was and am so undeserving of God's grace towards me. And because of God's hesed love towards me, I was born. And then 20 years later, when I trusted Christ, I was born again. And, and had a fuller understanding of God's grace. We see the same word hesed used in Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We see in this verse that God's hesed love is demonstrated in his, his willingness to forgive the sins of his people and remove our transgressions far from us. We see this demonstration of God's love also in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And because of his hesed love for us, Christ gives his life willingly. It was his own deliberate choice. He was determined to do the Father's will, and he was resolute in accomplishing what the Father had sent him to do. Ephesians 5 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. John 10 says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. God showed us his love in a tangible way by willingly identifying with us in his incarnation and laying his life down for us. So the motive why Jesus had to die is because he was compelled by his love for us and he willingly took action to do this.
The third answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die, answers the purpose why he had to die. The purpose why Jesus had to die was to transform our life. The purpose why Jesus had to die was to transform our life. Jesus' death provides us a way to be truly human as we were originally created and not the broken and distorted humanity that we see and we experience all around us. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So before we came to know Christ, we were full of brokenness because of our sin, and we lived enslaved to the desires of our old selves. The Bible calls this the flesh. We were self-absorbed, and we only cared you know, primarily about ourselves and not about others. We tended to live for ourselves, for our pleasure, our comfort, our security. And we did things primarily for the purpose of our gain and our success. This is the kind of life that is perfectly described in this verse as futile, useless, pointless, hopeless. But because Jesus died on the cross, he has not given, given us a way, not only given us a way to be truly human and to flourish as God originally created us to, but he has also given us an example in himself of how to live this out. Please don't take a look at Will Smith as your example of love and forgiveness. 1 Peter 2, 19-21 says, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you, for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We are now followed, we are called to follow Jesus' footsteps in a cruciform type of life, shaped by the cross. This means we are continually dying to our old selves and putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Without this daily dying to ourselves, there cannot be life and resurrection. And Paul puts it like this in Galatians 5. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So he has reoriented our whole way of being human, the way we think, the way we act, the way we do things. You know, last week, Darren challenged us to put on the new self in Colossians. And here's what Paul says putting on that new self looks like in Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
This is what Jesus exemplified on earth in his humanity. He showed compassion to the widows and to the orphans. He demonstrated humility by wrapping a towel around his waist and serving others by washing the disciples' feet. He forgave those who beat and killed him, and he showed us a new way to relate to our enemies by loving them. And this was exemplified to me by a friend of mine in the Philippines by the name of Tom Rojas. Uh, Tom was actually the president of the school that Shelley and I taught at when we were missionaries in the Philippines. And his testimony is like the embodiment of God's forgiveness and his grace towards his enemy. In 1992, Tom's brother was brutally murdered, being stabbed to death while investigating a major crime syndicate in Metro Manila. He was 38 years old and the father of six young children. Hearing eyewitness accounts and seeing pictures of this, his brother soaked in his own blood was hard for Tom to hear and for him to bear. And he not only sought justice for the death of his brother, but really he was seeking revenge. By divine providence, the murder was caught four months later on an unrelated crime. Fellow brothers and sisters in Christ began praying for Tom that he would be able to visit this man in prison and share the gospel with him. But there were two forces raging in Tom's heart. As a committed follower of Jesus Christ, he wanted to obey his Lord, Jesus Christ, and extend love and forgiveness to him. But as a grieving brother, he also had a strong desire to kill the man and to get revenge. He had played in his mind over and over again how he was there on the night of the murder and how he defended his brother and became the hero. But of course, reality would hit him every time and he would be haunted by his brother's death. He was accompanied by a Christian friend who was a police officer to face the criminal for the first time. The man didn't know who Tom was. Tom shared the gospel with him, but before the criminal, criminal put his trust in Jesus, he asked Tom if he was a priest because he looked like one and if he could confess to him something that he had done. The man recounted the details of how he had brutally killed a man he didn't know, Tom's brother. At that moment, Tom said he could feel the, the anger and the rage swelling up in him and that he could have easily been consumed by it. But the Holy Spirit reminded him of Jesus' words, to love your enemies. Tom sensed Jesus saying to him, I died for this man. I love him and I love you. That day, the man received Christ and trusted him as his Savior and Lord. But after a little more conversation, Tom and his police friend were about to leave, and the criminal turned to them and asked them, What is your name? Tom, so overcome with emotion, was unable to answer. The police officer told the criminal that his name was Tom Rojas the brother of the one you murdered. As soon as he heard that, the criminal fell prostrate. 
sobbing at Tom's feet. And in that moment, again, the rage swelled up in Tom, and he thought about just kicking him until the man couldn't get up anymore. Once again, the Holy Spirit reminded Tom of his words in Ephesians 4, 31 to 32, to get rid of all bitterness and anger, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. So instead, Tom stooped down, picked the man up, who had stabbed his brother, and told him, God has forgiven me. He has forgiven you too. And I also forgive you. They both hugged each other, sobbing along with the police officer. All of them were overwhelmed by the love of God. Getting even would have been the natural response of everyone in that situation. But love is the overflow of the Spirit's work in our hearts. When Tom visited this man a week later, he found him sharing the gospel and finding the love of God in Christ to the other prisoners. So the purpose why Jesus had to die was to transform our lives. Because Tom was transformed, he was living out of his new humanity. He had to die to what his old man wanted to do apart from Christ and to respond, which was to get revenge. But instead, he followed the way of Jesus and extended true forgiveness because of the true forgiveness that he had received in Christ Jesus. Both of them were at great cost, one to Tom and one to Jesus himself, his death on the cross. Jesus' death led to eternal life for Tom. Tom's death to his old self led to eternal life for the man who killed his brother. So why did Jesus have to die on the cross? God's grand narrative is that he has a redemptive story. And that redemptive story intersects with our story of brokenness and our story of sin. And then it births new stories of transformed lives through Jesus' death on the cross. He is redeeming the brokenness that has entered this world through man's rebellion and sin. And really, you don't have to look too far to see this brokenness, especially in relationships. Uh, relationships, you know, with one another in our family, in our marriages, relationships in the workplace, and of course, the broken relationship that we have with God. But God's res resolution is Jesus' death on the cross. So the reason why Jesus had to die was to pay for our sins by being a substitute payment for us so we could be reconciled to himself and to each other. The motive for why Jesus had to die was because he was compelled by his hesed love for us, and he demonstrated it by willingly laying down his life for undeserving sinners. The purpose for why Jesus had to die was to transform us and provide a way for us to be truly human again, like he created us to be before we rebelled against him and decided to go our own separate way. So 
my question to you today is, is where are you? Where are you today? We're going to enter a time of communion, and I want you to just ask yourself and consider that question today. What are you and where are you in your relationship with the Lord?